So good morning, church. It's such a privilege for me to actually be sharing the word this morning. And yes, it is my last as a Highfeld staff member. It does not mean I would not be back somewhere along the line as a, as a Willow staff member uh, being invited. Uh, Marina, uh, just saying. Um, but yeah, it's so fun. It's, it's five and a half years of close relationships. It's five and a half years of really spending time with the people that are here. And yes, there's many has come and gone. Many has come through and gone, like Marina's mentioned. And um, I'm so, it's so special for me if I hear even Megan's um, testimony this morning. She was basically, she preached on my behalf. Um, I can almost say, okay, guys, thanks so much for coming this week. Um, it was a blessing. Uh, but it's so precious because we are finishing off our, our miracle series um, today. And we're speaking about raising Lazarus from the dead. Raising Lazarus from the dead. And uh, just, about, just a bit of background about the book of John and maybe the Apostle John as well. It's, uh, if you don't know this, uh, John is the only one that recalls the story of Lazarus. He's the only one that, that, that really went into depth about it. The other Gospels basically just mentioned that Lazarus and his two sisters was basically close to Jesus. So Mary and Martha, Lazarus, they were family. They were close to Jesus. They had a good, good um, let's say, uh, relationship with Jesus. And um, if you know John, John is the only gospel that recalls the story. And then through his book, he mainly addresses believers who needed to be strengthened in their faith. Hence the fact that why this book is the last gospel, and as well as being the last book along with Revelation to be written. Okay, so this is very important. Why? Because um, at this moment, John was finding himself at the island of Patmos. He was away, so he was writing these stories, and the, this actual book of his was basically published in 90 AD. It was the last book that was published, and as the gospel, he was trying to really strengthen the believers, saying, hey guys, I know the situations and the circumstances that you're facing now, but hear me out, God is still on the throne, God is still the one to be worshipped, God is still in control of your lives, don't miss that, and that's why John wrote, and there's seven main things that John the Apostle was trying to establish with his book, with regards to Jesus and his, uh, his basically his identity. The first thing that John was trying to establish is Jesus as the Son of Man, as referred to by Daniel and his vision in the Old Testament. That was the first thing. The second thing that John tried to establish was Jesus as being the bread of life as referenced in the book of Deuteronomy. When it spoke about, we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, Obviously, you know Jesus is the Word, and that's why John starts his gospel by, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's trying to establish identity into the believer's hearts. The third one that we see is Jesus as being the light of the world, as referenced by the gospel of Matthew as well. The fourth one is Jesus as being the gateway for his sheep, meaning that salvation can only be found in and through Jesus. The next one there is Jesus as being a good shepherd, as referenced in the Old Testament and their expectation of the coming Messiah. You have to understand, back in those days, they would read the scriptures of the Old Testament, they would read Isaiah, they would read Jeremiah, and they would be reminded about this coming Messiah that was supposed to come. And one of those attributes would have been, he would have been a good shepherd. And yes, they had so many um, basically wrong ideas of how Jesus would look like when he actually came. And Jesus obviously went above those expectations and basically rocked their world by the way that he came. The next one 
as Jesus as being the one who raises people from the dead, as in the case of Jairus' daughter, the widow's son at the city nine, and obviously Lazarus being raised from the dead. But we'll get back to that one in a minute. The next one or the last thing that, um, that John tried to establish was Jesus as being the way, the truth, and the life, and this being the very reason why the Father sent Jesus, his only son. See, John was trying to just call the believers out of their, their sleepiness, their basically spiritual deadness and saying, hey guys, I need you to remember who is God. I need you to remember what God has done in your life. I need you to remember that God is still on the throne, whether you believe it or not. That's what John was trying to establish. And that takes me to my very first point. And we'll read basically, this is like a one-chapter sermon where we're going to spend time in John 11, verse 1 to 45. And we're going to do the first four sections, 1 to 4. And this brings me to my first point, to God be the glory. Now we read John 11, verse 1 to 4. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, where they lived. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, him who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, obviously, when you read that scripture and you read that Lazarus died, you don't, we don't necessarily understand what Jesus was trying to say there, but we understand that he is a sovereign God, so he already knew what the outcome would be, that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. And therefore, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified in and through it. I want to make a bold statement this morning saying that if God is not glorified by his church and by our collective worship, and by our devotion, we are all doing this in vain. There would be no need for church if the glory of God was not on the throne. There would be no need for church if people were being worshipped, and pastors were being worshipped, and leaders were being worshipped, and not Jesus. Then we do all this in vain. We're missing this, and that's why we get to the point where God needs to get the glory, and they, they said it's for the glory of God that the Son of Man may be glorified through it, through this miracle that was going to be happen. Now, my wife knows this beautiful song. Um, I never know the words or the people that sing it, but she knows it. Um, but the word says, no matter what I go through in this world, as long as you get the glory from this. This guy sings the song, and he says, no matter what I go through in this world, no matter what situations and circumstances I face, as long as you get the glory for this. Doesn't matter how that picture looks like. And I, and I saw myself in this because obviously God is a sovereign God and these things we do not, he sees things we do not see. And therefore, if I tell you my own story, I basically brought my friends here as my renter crowd this morning so that they would tell you I was not an angel in school. Um, they would be able to testify to the fact that I was not, I was not always the, the, I was always the naughty one. That's basically just like that. I just came, I, I came basically, I come voorgekom, what do you call voorgekom? I came across, yeah, voorgekom, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> thanks, Marines, <laughs> for that one. Um, I came across as one being like sweet and sensitive and so on, but when, then when it came to being in class and so on, I never did my homework, I was always naughty, it was not, it was not a good thing. So God took me through a few stages in my life, in my own story, and this is basically probably a miracle story of its own. But I lost my mother at the age of 14, 
um, in September of 2007. She was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 12, when I was 12. Not she. I was 12 at that time. And basically, um, long story short, is we really believed for a miracle to happen in her life. We, we, we believed that she would be healed, and she was. In grade 7, she was healed. In grade seven, 6, basically, when I was grade 6, 12 years old, she was diagnosed nose with breast cancer. We went to a um, healing service at Leavenworth Bermuda back in the days, and we really earnestly believed that my mother would be healed. And yes, she was. The doctors said in grade 7, she is healed completely. There's no signs of any breast cancer whatsoever. And this was like a moment for me in my life, like, wow, God is alive. God is listening to our prayers. God is listening to the things that is on our hearts. And we were continuously praying for that. And then at the end of my grade 7 year, 13 years old, she was diagnosed with breast cancer again. This happened very short after she was healed. And at this moment, I was basically in grade 8, starting my grade 8 year, and I earnestly believed that if God can do it once, He could do it again. And we will, we will pray for that miracle again, whatever. But I realized I worshiped God for the outcome. I worshiped God for the outcome. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll explain what I said to uh, what, I, yeah, what I mean by that. But she passed away the September of that year. And I went through a stage where I was going through a, quite a bit of rebellion. Rebellion in the sense that I didn't believe that God is really true. I didn't believe that he really exists because he didn't, he didn't answer our prayers. He didn't come through in my moment of sadness. He didn't come through in my moment of anguish that I was praying towards God. And then I had an encounter with Jesus in grade nine. God basically spoke to me so clearly that day at Loftus Feasts when it was basically, I was last night I was also at Loftus, but, but Loftus Feasts was at the time um, going, and I, I can't even remember who preached, and I just know Mangas was there, and, and that's all I know, basically. But I just know at that time, I gave my heart to God in, in my grade nine year, 15 years old, and I said to God, listen, I, want to, I just want to surrender to my own ways. I want to surrender to everything that I held above you, because I've taken you off the altar, and I've made everything else primary in my life, and I realized my worship was dependent on the outcome. My worship was not dependent on who God is, His character, and what He's revealed to me through His Scripture. My worship was dependent on what I want in my life and as the prayers to be answered. And if my prayers was not to be answered, I will not worship God. That is what I realized, what was going on in my heart. And I missed God so dearly and so much. And once I surrendered my life, I was so convicted by reaching lost people, that I made it my high school mission to reaching lost people. At every care, at every whatever um, I found myself, I made it my mission to lead people to the Lord. Why? Because I was believing a lie about God. Because I don't see the bigger picture. And if it meant that the death of my mother would have taken my father out of the depth that he was in, where he was not experiencing God, he was not loving God, he was not in a, in a dedicated and committed relationship with God. If I see the impact that it had on the rest of our family, I would say it was all worth it. All of those things were worth it because to God be the glory. If that is the case, if that is what happened, I will surrender my life to that. If people were impacted by the death of my mother, I remember actually sitting at the um, we, we uh, rented out the capel at uh, the church and it could only seat 300. And then at my mother's uh, funeral, 900 people rocked up. And I was like, I don't know what's happening now. 
And all of these people said just simple terms that in this short term, short period of life that my mother had, she was 47 when she passed away, in this short period of life that she had, she's impacted so many lives. And I thought by myself, wow, what a testimony in and of itself. What a testimony of someone that you don't know how long you're going to live, but to God be the glory. And this take me, takes me to my second point, even if we die. Even if we die, hear the story, uh, continue, John 11, verse 16. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again. You can imagine what went through the disciples' minds at the time. That is, Jesus is saying, okay, let's go back to Judea again. But they're like, yo, but listen, they just wanted to stone you like two days back. Why, do, why would we want to go back there again? So they didn't have context, obviously, of Lazarus' death. And it continues. It says, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? Now, just for context, um, Jews works from 6 to 6. Okay, so that's basically day 66 and then night 66. All right. Then Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go awaken him now. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. As you can imagine, this is basically the comedy of that day. God is basically telling them that Lazarus has passed away, but he's, he's using the terminology sleep. He's going to deep sleep. And they say, yeah, but he would, he would recover then. He would just wake up the next day and continue. And then he made, made it plainly. He said to them, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. All right, so very, very dramatic, very emotional um, in Thomas' uh, response. But he knew that they are going back there and there's a possibility, a very real possibility that they would be stoned. So that's why he's saying, hey, guys, he's, he's calling the fellow disciples and says, guys, whatever happens on this trip, Let's go with God. Let's go die with Him. If that is the case, if that is where we're going, we would die with Him. And I want to ask you this morning a few questions that maybe you can just do some introspection in your own life. Asking yourself the questions, are we committed and dedicated to God even to the point of death? Are we willing to lay down our lives for the sake of the truth? Is the gospel still enough for me to accept anything that comes my way, whether it be good or bad? My last question that I want to ask us is, are Jesus only good when things go well in my life? Or is Jesus good irrespective of my situations and circumstances that I face? And I think it's a question that we need to ask our, ourselves every single day is that as the disciples said, let us go and die with him, I'm willing to lay down my life for Christ, no matter what the cost. I'm willing to put myself in the spotlight. I'm willing to put myself in a space where I'm saying, God, send me, even if it means unto the point of death. He was basically calling them out and say, disciples, listen, this is the time where your fruit is tested. How deeply do you want to follow Jesus?
How deeply do you want to trust in his word? How deeply are you willing to go and how far are you willing to go to be faithful and diligent and obedient to God? How far is that point? My next point is even if he's four days late, he's still on time. Everyone remembers that song, eh? Even if he's four days late, he's still on time. Now there's context behind it and I'll explain it now. But John 11 verse 17 to 27 says the following. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And let me give you just a bit, a bit of context, background context. So Jews believed that for three days after a person has died, their soul hovers around them. That's what they believe. They honestly believe that. Okay, so it is a weird belief, but they believe the soul hovers around the body, and therefore it was four days when Jesus went, because then he would have been able to resurrect Lazarus from the dead, meaning they would not have said, yeah, but he was not dead yet, or his soul was hovering there, so there's something that to be brought to life. If you look at the other two stories, Jairus' daughter, for example, or the, the, the lady from Nine, I can't remember what her name was, but anyway, the lady from Nine, both of those instances occurred within two days when Jesus came there, meaning the Jews did not see that as a resurrection. They saw that as just they went into a, a, a deep sleep and they basically just came back and their souls just joined with their bodies. So obviously it's a very weird belief, but that's why Jesus said in this instance, it's for the glory of God to be revealed in and through resurrection, obviously showing to the resurrection that will, that will happen a little bit later, but it's for the glory of God to be revealed that I wait four days. All right, then it says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So immediately her head is not going to, there is a possibility of the resurrection happening. That's not where her head is going to. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asked her, asked her do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And this is the exact reason why Jesus intentionally waited four days before he went to Bethany, so that the Jews could not have said that Jesus was, that Lazarus was not dead at the time the miracle occurred. So beautiful if you understand the context of just being four days late. We sing this song, yes, even if it's four days late, he's still on time, and we don't know what it means. But if you know the context, it brings so much out of that scripture, and it's like, oh, that is the reason why Jesus said, yes, I've heard of Lazarus, I'll see you in two, three days, all right? That's the reality why these things happen, and this was also showing Jesus' res resurrection, which takes me to the next point. We worship a compassionate and loving God. John 11, verse 28 to 37, says the following. It says, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And the shortest scripture in your Bible is Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And if you look at the, 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 the Greek context of weeping in that sense, it basically refers to someone really having a deep anguish of seeing people around them, what they are experiencing emotionally, and he had compassion on them. We see, we see so many times in the gospel that Jesus said he looked at the sheep, he saw that they were without a shepherd, and that he had compassion on them. And even in this moment, he saw the Jews that even loved um, Lazarus, and they were weeping, and the sisters were weeping. And remember, this is a family friend, so he was weeping. Even though he knew what the outcome would be, he was still weeping. He was still resonating with their emotions. He was still understanding that they are not in a good space now. They are experiencing the death of Lazarus, not knowing what the outcome would be. And therefore, he basically consoled them and said, he wept with them. And then it continues, and it says, the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Kept this man from dying. Because even in their heads, if he was there earlier, because they saw him do miracles and um, uh, healing blind people, doing miracles in terms of the, what happened to people's legs and all those things. And even they were not understanding that the resurrection can be something possible to happen. That's why they said, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So I want to I share this, basically, in a, in a, just saying that there is no, absolutely no religion on earth that stakes claim to a God being compassionate, loving, and understanding God like Christianity does. I want you to hear this. There is absolutely no religion on earth that stakes claim to a God being compassionate, loving, and understanding than the God of Christianity. So the reality is this, this is what Nabil Qureshi, who wrote the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, he wrote two other books as well, Answering Jihad and No God But One. This is what he realized when in this moment of anguish when, he, anguish, when he was struggling with his faith, knowing that he's seeing all of the goodness that the, the gospel presents, seeing the historical evidence of Jesus on a cross dying for him, seeing all the things that he can no longer run away from, he had this moment where he went into his room and he was in anguish and he had the Bible on one side, he had the Quran on the other side and he was seeking diligently in the Quran for even one scripture where God, Allah, in their sense, is actually consoling and comforting his people and he could find none. It took him four chapters into Matthew, four chapters into Matthew, to the, to the Beatitudes, the Sermon of the Mount, where he heard the words, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It took him four chapters into the New Testament to have an experience and an encounter with Jesus. And that's why his book was titled, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Because when he was earnestly seeking, Allah did no, not appear. He was not there. 
not his scriptures, not the Quran, nothing that he could find consoled or comforted him in that moment. But one, only four scriptures, five to be exact, five into the New Testament, took him to a place where God said, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Isn't it the beauty if we look at these scriptures that even in this moments where God is, we worship a compassionate and a loving God, I don't sometimes think we know what that means. Any other people, any other religion group in the world does not know the ability of a God that has compassion and love for them, the creation, that wants a relationship with them on a daily basis, and yet we forsake it. Yes, we miss, yet we miss those moments. But God is the comforter. If you just look at the Holy Spirit's name, he's a comforter. That's what he does. He comes to us and he comforts us in our, in our moments of anguish. And it's so special when we look at these things and the story of Nabil Qureshi and how he found Jesus was in the moments that it was going bad in his life, where circumstances and situations were taking over his life. Such a special moment. And therefore, my next point we ought to believe authority over life and death lies in the power of Jesus Christ. If we see this last part, it says, John 11, verse 38 to 44. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me, hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said those things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen and strips, uh, strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I don't know who of you have ever seen how the Lazarus, how this Lazarus tomb looked like. It's not just a cave where it's a single story cave where the stone can be rolled away and you can go in and out. No, no, there's stairs. It goes down to the bottom where, where, where Lazarus laid. So if you think about it, just hear this last part. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. He had to come upstairs to come out to the outside. That's a miracle in and of itself happening there. And they, therefore, the people that were surrounding there, that were seeing this happening, couldn't deny it whatsoever. Why? Because they knew how the tomb looked like. But this reality, some of us find ourselves in a tomb moment now. We are either are spiritually dead, spiritually stagnant, and God is calling you back to life. Just like he did with Lazarus and said, come out. Come out of your hiding. Come out of your place of stagnancy. Come out of your place of spiritual death because I want to use you for a lost and dying world outside. Before we go over to the first point, I want, to, I want us to close our eyes for a moment. And I want to ask you this morning, if, if you've never had the opportunity to give your heart to Jesus and surrender to Him, don't you want to do that now? 
Don't you want to put up your hand if you're the one that I'm talking to this morning, that you are in a place where you are spiritually dead because you've never given your heart to Christ. Please put up your hand this morning. We want to pray with you. This is you that I'm speaking with. I'm giving you a last opportunity to put up your hand and we'll do a prayer. There's no one like this in here. We'll go into the second point. Okay, good. Now, the second group of people that I'm talking to this morning is that if you are feeling stagnant, spiritually dead, you've lost all hope and passion for the gospel, you're not as passionate or not as... You, you, need just, you need someone to ignite you this morning, to pray with you this morning, so that you would just gain your love for the gospel, gain your, lost, your love for lost people this morning, knowing that you've tasted and seen the glory of God in your life before, and you need a serious awakening from God again. If I'm speaking to you this morning, don't you want to take the liberty of just standing up? If you are feeling, feeling spiritually stagnant, please stand up this morning. I know I'm speaking to more than three people this morning. I want to call you out. God wants to do something with your life. He wants to use you as an instrument in your hands, in his hands. If you are feeling that, this is your last chance to stand. And then I want us to do just a just a beautiful family moment where we come along these, come around these people and let's pray with them for the spiritual stagnancy and the, and the dead to rise so that God can use us. Right, let's, let's get around, around these people and let's start praying for them, please. Thank you, Emil. Lord, this morning we pray for a spiritual igniting to happen in the midst of our people. Lord, we ask that we would experience your presence like never before, Lord, and that that will compel us to reach out to a lasting, dying world outside. Lord, I thank you for just being the one that comes so often to ignite our hearts and to just reignite the passion that you've installed into our hearts Lord may we never lose the hope of reaching lost people all over the world but even so in our own lives people around us may we be sensitive to your voice Lord Holy Spirit guide us, lead us show us the way 
trust you and we honor you, Lord. Thank you that we can know that you are the resurrection and the life. And we tag onto that, Lord, and say, Lord, come and ignite the faith in our hearts. We want to run with what you put on our hearts. We don't want to miss these moments. In the name of Jesus.